Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the New Life Church Rewind podcast. My name is Michael, and I'm here with Pastor David Sangster. Hello, everybody. And this week, we are continuing on in our series here at church called How to Pray. And this is the second of a three-week... Maybe four. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're calling this a a foundation series, Mm -hmm. And we've t- taken some time um, this year to kind of go back to the basics and mm-hmm. kind of mine out some of these, just some of these things that Christians are supposed to know, what they're supposed to do. And yeah, sometimes they're not as basic as they seem. So we're just kind of going over it. So what is the title of this week's message, Pastor Dave? So keeping with the last week's message, which was uh, the template, this this week's is the posture. And... Uh, We'll, we were de- dealing with, you know, what is the appropriate posture of prayer? And what was the big idea of the message? So this is where we landed, was Jesus teaches us the importance of creating space to encounter God free from distraction. So basically, what we're going to talk about how is the posture of prayer isn't like a... Uh, like a yoga pose. Right. It's not a physical, um, I, I guess, a posture that you're in. It's more. Yeah. This is more of a con- concept, this yeah, posture. He's not asking us to be a contortionist of prayer. Mm-hmm. He's people, being a people of prayer. And so we started the sermon. Um, you read from a book, uh, and there's a, a famous pastor. His name is Chris Hodges. Yeah. And Church you, of the Highlands. Church of the Highlands. Yep. And he authored uh, the book that was kind of used to kind of inspire this yeah. this series a bit. And you you read us an excerpt of what you know uh a pastor's prayer routine looks like in yeah, the morning. Yeah. Just to kind of just put out in the open for us about what it looked like. And we were listening to it and he says he starts his mornings with coffee yeah, and some pr- fairly loud instrumental music. <clears throat> but I also noticed that he said he never goes down without his pens and his highlighters Mm -hmm. in hand. And I was thinking as I was listening to the sermon that, at least to me, whenever I think pens and highlighters, Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of like an academic setting to me, that that it's more more study than than prayer. Mm -hmm. And it was just something of note. So I wanted to ask you, should people, when they hear that, that, you know, this is how the pastor Mm-hmm. praise in the morning with his pens and his highlighters. What if I'm someone who just doesn't have like an academic state of mind? Like I'm I'm not going to take notes. I'm not going to highlight. I, I want to do it. I want mm-hmm. my prayer posture to be good. But th- that just doesn't sound like me. Right. Is prayer academic? Um, I, think, I think when you're t- talking about someone like Chris Hodges or a pastor in general, um, they're always, you know, th- they come from a class of people who are, uh, are preparing sermons and keeping notes and uh, keeping files on things. So you're going to get a little bit more of that. I don't necessarily think it needs to be a note-taking uh, discipline, but I've always been of the mind that if if I'm having a conversation with God and He says something profound to me or I pick up something in His Word that is profound, um, I don't want to lose that. You know, so I'll I'll jot it I'll jot it in the margins of my Bible, or I'll um, or I'll highlight the verse. And, you know that sure. I think the highlighter is actually even less academic than the pen, because you see a verse and it really sticks out to you. You just mark it with a highlighter. So you know, when you go back to that, it's like, oh, that's the one. It's sure. just a reminder thing. Um, some people I've know ha- use post-it notes. They'll 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 write something down on a post-it note and then they'll stick it somewhere where they can see it on a regular basis. Uh, so it's just it's just a way of uh, communicating, and when you're speaking to the God of the universe, and He speaks to you, and shares something with you in your prayer time or your devotional time, uh, I think having a pen on hand, uh, with a with a journal or a notebook or a post-it note or something like that, just helps you to capture that, so that you can meditate on. It. I think meditation 
um, in a devotional time is, and I'm not talking about you know om and crossing your fingers. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about rethinking about what God is speaking. And Chris said in his in that little excerpt in Chris's book, he said he tries to read through the scriptures slowly and savor each word. And he he put that with like his coffee. You know, yeah. you notice that when I read it, he's like, I have my cup of coffee, and then I read the Word of God slowly, and I savor it. And I couldn't tell if he was talking about savoring the coffee, or I think it was both. I think the yeah. whole point of it was yeah, both. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think that type of thing, just capturing the moment and not not letting the the gems that God gives us go to waste. Right, so we're thinking about that pen and that highlighter more like as a means to like take a photograph in our Bibles Mm -hmm. or our minds at that time with God. So he studies the Bible as he prays, it seems. That's kind of the impression I got. So when we're talking about prayer, does, does someone who wants to get into good, healthy habits as a Christian, does Bible study always go with the prayer or can we separate the two? Like, can we have prayer time that's a little bit more, uh, savory that we're saving and then mm-hmm. have time for study. Is it better to do it together or is it more like what works for you? As we get, yeah, uh, yes. The answer is it can be separated. Um, I think, I think you're going to separate them. I think an intentional, when we're, when, the, when we come across this particular se- uh, sermon in the series, we talk about making, uh, creating spaces that are, uh, devoid of distraction right. to have these encounters with God. I think uh, in those moments, very very often, Scripture is going to come along with it. Um, how? Do, what is the main way in which God speaks to us? Is through this Word. So, if you want to have, if you want to know the Word of God, if you want to know what God's saying about something, He usually uses His own Word to speak to our hearts, and He might expand on it uh, for the situation that you're in the circumstances that you find yourself in, but usually it comes through that. Um, but when we get into the next uh, sermon in this series, we'll talk more about this concept of praying without ceasing. And it doesn't, when you get up from that quiet time, that designated quiet time with God, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean prayer's over. So I think, yeah, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to read your Bible all day. But you will be in constant prayer with God all day. So yeah, there is going to be a separation, but they do they do dovetail very well together in getting a full experience of what is God trying to say to me. Okay. And one last thing about Pastor Hodges, mm-hmm. he did mention how he rises before the family, mm-hmm. he goes downstairs, he he I, th- I think downstairs, whatever he does his prayer time, and then he when he oftentimes when he returns to his his bedroom, his wife is upstairs and she's praying. Mm-hmm. So this is a husband and wife. They don't pray together. Mm-hmm. So is there value in praying with our spouses, or does that almost, you hate to say it, does that create a distraction that's not necessarily good? Yeah. Should we be praying with our spouses? Well, I think what he's trying to explain is not just just prayer. He's talking about creating that that space for devotional a devotional time with God, a one-on-one uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't pray with his wife other times. So this True. is a, th- we're talking about more of a devotional designated me and God on the daily on the on the, yeah on the regular yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I you know I don't think you have a I don't think you can have a healthy marriage, um, especially as a pastor, uh, where you're taking all that spiritual uh, attention from the enemy. We'll get into that a little later, um, but without having a robust prayer life with your wife. And that means, you know, praying for each other, praying with each other, praying uh, about other things with each other. Um, but I do think that there's this, there is a special moment, and it should be part of our regular routine um, where it's just us and God. And yes, I do think a spouse in that moment might be more of a distraction. What Lisa and I have done is... Uh, it's very similar to to the to what the Hodges do. She has her prayer corner of mm-hmm. the house, and I have my prayer corner of the house. Um, what we have done in the past is, even in, though we're split up geographically to different rooms, we might study through the same book together. And then 
that brings up conversations later on. Yeah, that's actually a, just, you know, in the moment here, you're saying that that's actually a, um, a helpful concept of a way that mm-hmm. you can kind of be united with your wife in a daily way in prayer, but yeah. you still have that room with just you and God. Yeah. And it, you know, we'll, we'll pick up a devotional book. Uh, we've done it multiple times throughout our marriage. Uh, but most of, you know, you also got to remember that everybody's wired differently. My wired, my, my wife is wired way differently than I am. So yeah. things that um, really speak to her from a devotional standpoint or quiet time with God may not jazz me as much. So having our own thing that we can really sink our teeth into and uh, create those spaces uh, might look very different. And I think with just the description of, of how um, Tammy Hodges, her posture of prayer was very different than Chris's. She was up there, you know, quietly meditating, quietly praying, uh, tears in her eyes, whereas yeah. Chris was more uh, study and then, like, loud worship, you know? It just, their, their, their personalities are different. Yeah, I could tell you not much quality time would be getting done with me and God if I was in my bedroom. Right. That, that's about the worst place I could yeah. imagine. That yep. would be like the last place on my list that I would yeah. probably no, I couldn't do it want to yeah. do it. So, <laughs> so one quick question about that devotional materials. Yeah. If someone's like, I, you know, sometimes just sitting there with the, mm-hmm. the full word of God, all yep. 1600 no, pages you. in front of me, what would you say about using, you know, obviously there's different qualities, but let's just say it is of quality, a quality like, you know, devotional material, you know, like maybe there's a little Mm -hmm. write up in a verse materials like that. Yeah. We're given the okay on those. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think depending on your, um, maturity as a Christian, the the longer you've been in Christ, you're going to, you know, certain, you're going to be at a place like, ah, I've done that before. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I would say a new believer, I mean, just grabbing a, one of the daily bread, you know, little pamphlets we give out. Yeah, we have those right in our lobby. Yeah, you grab a daily bread and use that in the morning uh, to, or, or whenever you carve out your time, to just focus your devotional time and then using a tool like the template of the Lord's Prayer to focus your prayer time. The, these things are highly, you know, they're, they're, you know, Spurgeon has a morning and evening one. Yeah. You know, where you have time in the morning and you have time in the evening. There's so many of those. And if anybody's, you know, you could you could write us at uh, rewind at discoverednewlife.org and I can get, I can give you some great options for that even you know from a new believer to you know I've been in the church for 20 years and I'm getting bored with the stuff I have uh, that's a very natural thing awesome so that's a great that's a that's we good, can resource you that good for us yeah. to know so we're talking about the posture of prayer mm-hmm. and I know we're not talking about the posture of prayer as like a physical right. pose but I grew up in a Christian tradition right where praying was associated with kneeling. Mm-hmm. And it just was very natural that like when you're praying, you're kneeling. Like that was just mm-hmm. something, right? And in the Old and New Testament, we also find a lot of people when they're praying, they're praying on their knees. Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a quick list. In Ephesians, Paul's on his knees praying in prison. Mm-hmm. In Daniel, we see him on his knees uh, in defiance of the king's decree. In Luke... Jesus kneeling in the garden, the other gospels. So it's, I guess the question is, is praying on our knees reserved for certain kinds of moments or situations? When should we get on our knees to pray? Do we ever have to? Mm -hmm. So I would be careful with using posture, like physical posture, um, as almost a, a Gnostic like this is like a like what I've seen, especially in the like it makes the prayer better or something. Yeah, well, yeah, especially in the charismatic movement. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of you know, um, a lot of things out there telling you that if you do this a certain way, then you'll get results this way. Um, that to me is very, very gnostic. Like there's some secret knowledge there. When you look at the life of Jesus, if he was, if anybody was to tell us which way to pray to get God's ear, it would have been him. I suppose that moment when they said, teach us, teach us how to pray, he would have said, well, here's the first thing get you, down you need to do. He doesn't or, or, say you this. Know, you know, standing with your hands in the air. So so this is my statement is this. As long as you're not using a physical posture as a talisman or a way of, uh, you know, a Gnostic knowledge of how to get God to move, 
but you're using it as a play as a way to uh, focus yourself. Now, if I ever had to pray on my knees, it would be excruciating because my knees are so bad. Right. Like I just don't, I yeah. don't go on my knees. Um, but I do often sit forward because I said it on Sunday. If I don't, if I sit back, I I tend to you know get into that sleepiness right yeah, sure. so i will sit forward with my with my elbows on my knees and lean forward and when i'm when i'm really devoting myself to prayer that's a posture that helps me focus um and i think if if kneeling is something that helps you to focus or is like a a discipline that you learned when you were a kid that uh like you said a, a particular denominational or discipline of, of faith kind of emphasize that and that really you associate that with prayer and it helps you by all means do it I, there's no problem for me for that as long as you don't think that the kneeling has some kind of you know extra power like to it, it qualifies the prayer in some kind of special yeah, way well, it's really like the, the the aspect of daniel daniel had a discipline of praying three times a day yeah Right, um, uh, and he looked out his window towards, towards Israel, towards right. the temple. That was his focused prayer time, and it comes out of scripture. That you know, if my people who are called humble themselves and pray, this whole this whole concept it, that they would they would uh, face towards Israel, and then God would hear them and restore them. Right, so this was something that was given to them through the prophets. So yeah, I, I just don't think I think we got to be careful that we don't use you know, spiritual gyrations to, you know, paganize our worship where we can, you know, do a certain dance or we can stand on our, do something like that to get the gods to move. That's not how Jesus taught us how to pray. Right. And and the reason I wanted to ask that question is because I'm always just on like kind of a personal level, always on the hunt for this idea that like when the Reformation happened, Mm -hmm. did the Protestant church throw away traditions just because we're having a reformation now. Right. And, and and so I just, you know, and it's not just Catholicism. There's some mainline denominations that are yep. very into this kneeling. So I just wanted to ask that question for the sake of just kind of clearing the air that it's not that kneeling is good or bad. Right. It's no, more about sure. I think when it comes to, like, institutionalizing a thing, uh, the Catholic Church institutionalized when you should, how you should pray, when you should pray. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the institutionalized things that the Catholic Church did were very healthy from a standpoint of, um, well, maybe think about prayer today. We, we wouldn't, you know, unless you're, unless you're from a Orthodox or Catholic tradition, you wouldn't re- repeat rote prayers, right? That's no, not, I don't do. think so. Not, we don't do that as evangelicals, right? Right, right? But why did the Catholic Church do that? Well, these people didn't read. They, they were they were a highly illiterate group of people, and they were workers in the fields and things like that. So they would have these prayers that would reinforce good biblical doctrine within their prayer time. That would, or some of them not so good doctrine, but you know th- this repetition yeah, right. of what things were doing. So because they were not they were not praying, and and not, honestly, they weren't even getting the masses in in their own language. So giving these people prayers to say over and over again was something that was helpful. It it was helpful for that time, but when you institutionalize it and you legalize it, then there becomes a confusion as to why are we doing this? Is it beneficial for me, or is it just something that the church over time has... Inst- Listen, we do that. We have our own liturgies. <laughs> we do, you know, three songs and a... Yeah, know, yeah. We, we have our own things. So are they beneficial to help us connect with God, or are they just rituals that we have handed down? And that's always the, you know, position we have to kind of keep analyzing right okay so let's move on because i think talking about our prayer posture has an implication to how we pray with other people right right so you were you were teaching us how you have to find out how you can create that space Mm -hmm. with you and god in in preferably in the morning but whenever it works for you or whatever but that's very individualized right but now we, we go to pray with a group of people, right. corporate prayer. Mm-hmm. Do we still have that same, because now you have groups of people who right. know exactly how to create that space. So like when we pray corporately, mm-hmm. does it change? Does our prayer posture change? Or like how do we integrate our individualized prayer posture with the individualized prayer postures of other people in a prayer meeting or something like that? Right. Uh, I think, I, th- I think there's some difficulty around that. 
um, because you have in any given group of people, you're going to have different temperaments. Yep. You're going to have different uh, ways of doing things. Sometimes you're going to have people who are very adamant about this is how you should be praying. And other people are going to be kind of curious and not adamant. They, they're learning and they're trying to learn. Mm-hmm. So you can have a dominant person take over and tell everybody this is, you know, so it, it's something that should be, I think when we're in corporate worship, I think it's, it's a great opportunity to, um, to have somebody to develop a structure that you're going to use that everybody can, everybody can get on, on the same page with, uh, in that though, in that structure, I have always tried to uh, incorporate a level of freedom to that structure. Like uh, when, when we have a prayer meeting, we'll pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we might ask somebody to pray. But then we'll have open prayer where anybody can pray. Uh, I like to walk in prayer meetings. I don't know why. I like to, it, it keeps me focused. It keeps me yeah. from thinking about what's happening because I'm always organizing things, right? So when uh, when there's open prayer, I like to kind of just get my feet moving because... Uh, I, I, it helps me to not focus on the work of prayer, I guess, cause that's, I'm the pastor, right? Okay. So, you know, some people might want to walk, some people might want to be quiet. Uh, I think the problem comes when we start to force people to pray in a way that's outside of their, their, their makeup, right? So, uh, if, if there's an introvert, who is like Chris Hodges' wife, who's just, right. you know, praying quietly. And it, it, we we can't minimize the contribution of that prayer because they're not being charismatic or loud or crying. You know, I think we in the Pentecostal circles, we, we, we kind of feel like the person who's crying the loudest or the one oh, who's... They must be doing They're some super praying. spiritual. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. We got to be careful that we don't do that. Um, because we're all part of the body and we're all made differently. Right. And I think that ties into the idea of not praying like the hypocrites do. Well, yeah. That, you know, you're, you, this is not a, a spectacle, it's not a performance. Right. But I do agree that um, corporate prayer done right. It's powerful, man. It reigns in the kind of the extremes of mm-hmm. people's individualism. Right. But it should give room, room for, for the introvert, for the extrovert, for the new believer, mm-hmm. for the old believer, for the for the crier, for right. the yeller, for the the quiet church. So, mouse so I would type. say on this particular note, if you are a extroverted, uh, a kind of a, a loud prayer, and you're going into a corporate worship service, uh, be respectful of that. You know, a prayer service. Let's say, be respectful mm-hmm. of that. Uh, this doesn't mean you can't be you, but don't make yourself the the uh, center of attention. And don't make other people feel bad if they're not praying like you. And I would say for the introverts, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying hard things and and coming out of your shell a little bit and and stretching yourself. You know, we can both we can both learn from each other. But as long as we all understand that you know we are wired a certain way, doesn't mean we have we can't learn and we can't grow. But we just got to be careful that we don't uh, demean each other in the in the process. Okay. So now we'll move on to Mark chapter 1. Great. And um, that was the main uh, scripture that we used. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it says this uh, under the title, but I'm calling this chapter A Busy Day in the Life of Jesus. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And that's pretty much what we... So we, we basically talked about how we look at this day in the life of the Messiah and how his day was packed. He was busy. And really, the teaching point there is, if this guy is not too busy to pray, neither are you. Right. And I found that very convicting. But that's, but that's <laughs> Me because, too. because it's true, right? <laughs> Me too. And, uh, um, you know, it's funny. I went home, and uh, my wife missed church and had house service, and I basically just boiled it down to, if Jesus wasn't too busy to pray, neither are you. Yeah. That's pretty much the sermon. I was like, at least that's how I, like, that was the part <laughs> that I heard the most. Yeah. And I was like... Well, That's funny. I was like, so I got, you know, tomorrow morning I'm spending a few extra minutes yeah, down there. It's true. But uh, what I really want to talk about, yeah. because this is the rewind, I want to talk about demons. Okay. And we talked about in that Mark chapter one how Jesus casts out a demon. Mm-hmm. 
and we started to see what an exorcism in all reality, this is what an exorcism really looked like. Yep. Jesus had command over the demon and sent them out. So I want to ask you first a question about exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Why do why does it seem that whenever we picture an exorcism in our mind, and even this is true, there's a there's a whole at least the Catholic Church, like there's right. these rites and rituals. Mm-hmm. Why do we think that the power over evil is vested in these ritualistic activities, prayers, and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Because I want to ask you, is it is it just, is it our fallen nature that we think we can create these systems? Mm-hmm. Or is it more just a general ignorance that we all have to some degree of the true power of God? Yeah. Which one do you think it is? I, I think... So this is this is coming from a completely academic understanding because sure. I have not encountered an exorcist in my exorcism in my life. Neither have I. I mean, as far as doing it myself, I've I've been around them. Uh, I've I've experienced a a moment where in high school where a a student was uh, possessed and the staff of pastors had to intervene on that. It was scary, man. It was scary. But I've never had to do it on my own. So I believe that Jesus was turning the page on this thing. Um, I think the authority of, of Jesus was such that he didn't need to go through gyrations to get this thing to go. I, I think Jesus was just basically saying, I am, I am in complete authority over you. And I think as children of God, using the name of Jesus, um, invoking the power of Jesus is how we, uh, we, uh, address the demonic forces of the world. Here's the, here's the, here's the big thing for our culture in the, in the here and now. We have first got to be, we have first got to understand that these things are real. 100%. I think much of the problems we have in our culture when it comes to uh, demonic possession or demonic uh, existence is not so much the fact that we don't believe God has the power to do something. We just don't believe these things exist in a practical way. Like we, we, we conceptually believe that they exist, but we don't actually believe they exist in our practical life. And I think we have to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on in our physical realm uh, that we can't see, taste, touch, or smell, and that it's real, that people are dabbling with things that open doors to 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 d- demonic possession or d- demonic influence, especially. Uh, and I think I, I've told my my kids, I've told the teens that I used to uh, work with as a as a youth pastor. Listen, there are certain gates. That you think that you, you 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 know you're flinging these doors open to these gates, and if you are not careful, you're gonna open a floodgate of demonic activity in your life. Now we'll get we'll talk a little bit more a little bit more, but uh, things like tarot card reading, things like um, Ouija boards, simple things that like you know who, who who's the company that puts the Ouija board out? Is it like Play School or? And they're presented. As, as, as a game, cute, as, a game. as as harmless. Um, These are not harmless things. These are real, and uh, so first off, we have to identify the fact that demons are real, and secondly, we have to identify the fact that if those who are not in Christ, they're very powerfully, they 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 very powerfully attach themselves. It's not something to to, to mess around with, and I just go back to that um, the passage where uh, the. Seven sons of Sceva back in scripture. I can't remember what, what book it was, but they were trying to cast out demons. And the demons spoke back to them and said, uh, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Yeah. Because they were using the name of Jesus and the name of Paul, as a, again, as a talisman to try to get some result. And that's not how it works. You have to actually have the power of God living in your life to be able to release the power of, of, of God into the, the, the physical world. And another interesting thing that we'll see in the Gospels is that sickness mm-hmm. and being possessed by a demon, mm-hmm. they always seem to be yeah. linked, kind of. Yeah. 
and it seems clear that they're not the same thing because otherwise you wouldn't need to like mm-hmm. differentiate between the two. But it seems as though when Christ interacts with people in his earthly ministry, the way he casts out sickness and the way he ca- casts out demons, they almost seem to be very like in line. Mm. Are, are these things related? Like how should we see them in scriptures? Like are they linked or does it just kind of appear that way at, at times? Yeah. Um, I do think that there are times where Jesus just doesn't correct people. I, I think some people will go to Jesus and say, hey, my son has a demon that's throwing him into the fire. Okay. Jesus doesn't say yes that there is a demon that could have that literally could have been epilepsy, sure, or some kind of a, a mental, you know, something like that. He doesn't he, the the demon doesn't talk to Jesus in that instance. There are times where demons literally speak to Jesus when he's almost confronting their host, them, confronting them, and so those those I think there's a differentiation there. I I don't know that every thing that was called a demon in in the New Testament always was. But like you said, Jesus didn't differentiate too much with his his like process. Almost the prescription, right? It was on the authority of my Father in heaven. Yeah, be done with this sickness. Yeah, or C- come out, come out. So whether it's out. the demon or the sickness, come out, right? Um, but then we have this example of the disciples trying to do this, mm-hmm. and and they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, "Listen, hold on a second. This one can only come out through prayer and fasting." So um, Jesus understood that there are uh, there are limitations to our to us as human beings. I have a I have a sense that Jesus being Jesus being God that that would not have been the case for him had he encountered that that person. That was the case for them. that was the case for them. Um, and I and, and again this gets into like okay, there's so many books written about like the formulas of prayer and things like that. I think one of the things we should do is if if something doesn't uh, happen, and, and when we invoke the the name of of Jesus for a demon possession or something like that, then we got to assume that we need to go deeper. We need to press in. We need to go for you know. It's not just you know God, you didn't do your job right, or God didn't show up or whatever. I think we got to persist in prayer when we don't see the results of prayer that we. Uh, we know to be the will of God. We that's a key thing. We know to be the will of God. God does not will uh, desire anybody, anybody, to be possessed by a demon. Sure. So I can know that, right? I can know that full well, so that I know I can, in power of of the authority of Christ, pray for that demon to be released. And if it doesn't happen right away, it means we just got to go back to it. We just got to go. Um, in the instance that I was talking to you about as a teenager. Um, they were praying for this kid and he was just, he was just not, the result was not that the demon was, the demon was just kind of causing this kid to go into convulsions and really have a problem. Right. Okay. Uh, so one of the counselors, now the camp counselors, right? These young people, uh, he noticed that the kid who was demon possessed had all these, um, crystals, like a bunch of different necklaces of crystals around his neck. Okay. And so he went up and he just, he just took a knife and he cut him off and he, th- he kind of threw him away. Yeah. And the second he took those crystals off, the kid went like limp, like a fish. And then what happened? And then he came into his right mind and he was fine. And then they prayed over him, you know, and he, they prayed over him because he wanted to, now that he was free from this demonic, he, he realized the power of God in his life, so he wanted to become a Christian, right? Because you, you don't know, anyone who's been through that doesn't want to go back to that. It's it's a scary, scary place to be. So, with all that being said, can a, a Christian become possessed by a demon? Yeah, that's... I, and, and so, let's do first. First, let's define the terms. Right. When we say a Christian... Mm-hmm. What would you say if we were just going to define that word? Someone who is who has been saved, someone who not just someone who goes to church, right? right. Well, so let, let's just yeah, let's define what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who has uh, accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Someone who who is now putting himself underneath the lordship of Christ, um, and is sealed with Christ. By the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, 
as soon as you as soon as you become a Christian, you have you receive the Holy Spirit. Now we're not talking about the day of Pentecost type of stuff. We're talking about the seal of God through the Holy Spirit on your life. Right. Um, that's a very important understanding. You can go to church your whole life and never ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Um, so just church attendance does not make you a Christian, which I think is in this particular conversation is the key key piece because there are people who profess Christianity as a, as a religious entity, as a yes. thing, as a practice. Right. But who, it's more. It's it's not like a. It's more like a flag they wave as opposed right. to. So, so they, we're, they we're, can they can. So we're talking about someone who has been saved. Jesus is their Lord, their Savior. Mm-hmm. They they're being um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right. Can a person like that actually become demon possessed? By demon. demon possessed. I I would have to say I don't think so. I really do. I don't think Scripture bears that out. Um, and we have to. Kind of understand the difference between possession and affliction. What's the difference? So possession is internal, affliction is external. Okay. So if you are a Christian, you're going to have a target on your back by the enemy to afflict you, to try to to try to minimize your your joy, to try to take away your effectiveness as a Christian or your testimony. Sure. So you have a target. You literally have a target on your back to be afflicted by the enemy, um, and. Uh, so you you're going to be you're gonna you're gonna he's gonna come after you and 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 the apostles talk about this right this idea that you know uh, caught it all joy when you are persecuted and treated falsely and 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 go through many trials and tribulations and afflictions right for my sake and like we were talking about you you said a few moments ago this idea that and it's very true in in the modern church in the West that the spiritual warfare mm-hmm. we've kind of like myth like made oh, that a myth absolutely. and, and, so and i would say it's by the grace of god that we don't that the veil is pulled over our eyes because yeah. if you could actually see the spiritual yeah. warfare that's happening all around you all day every day yeah. you it's, it's by god's grace that you don't have to see that yeah but because it's a war mm-hmm. i mean that enemy is going to send his soldiers at you right and, and i don't want people to think that there's a demon behind you check under your saying. bed at night for demons but uh, but you, but the Bible says very clearly, you should expect this. Don't be shocked when you have many trials and tribulations and afflictions because of my name. That, right. and and if if you have no trials in your Christian life, it's pr- you know this isn't a, like a guaranteed law, but yeah. you might not be viewed as a th- as a threat. Right. But people who are a threat to the enemy right. and his ways are people who. Who are believers? There, there. Uh, the Holy Spirit is upon them. Right. So that would be the that be the external affliction type of a scenario where possession is internal. It's it's a it's a residential type of a thing. Um, and I believe, and I think Scripture bears this out, that those who are in Christ already have residence of the Holy Spirit, a resident in their in their in their in their being, in their spirit. So they they can't share they can't share the. Department, <laughs> right? And I, I track with this too that someone who, it just seems to flow very logically that if the Holy Spirit is living in you, yeah, and then this created being, because we have to remember these demons, yeah. they're not. This isn't dualism, right? That they're right. like this equal opposing force. Absolutely they are, not. They are lower beings. They're created beings. Yeah. That this thing could then come along and evict the Holy Spirit right. out of you. Exactly. That just doesn't jive with me. So yeah, I mean, we look at the scripture of uh, when Jesus tells a a parable of the man who was demon possessed and the demon was uh, exercised uh, and he went out into the wilderness and he attracted seven other demons like himself and they didn't know where to go. So they went back to the host that had just had the possession, Mm -hmm. uh, the exorcism and found the house clean and vacant and then they all moved back in, and his latter condition was worse than the previous, because it didn't have. It was clean, but it didn't have anything living inside. But it, it was vacant. It was vacant. It was vacant. And that's where I think you know we as a as a current culture, when we if we don't take this spiritual battle seriously, uh, we are we are we may not even have a, a a dirty house, but we're cleaning it for the for entities to take take uh, residence. So just like we said in the New Testament, in the, in the first century, they may have atta- you know may have attached uh, 
demonic possession to actual sickness. And Jesus didn't correct that. I, th- I do believe in our current day, we have sicknesses that have their roots in that demonic possession that we're not calling out. I think a lot of the depression, anxiety, and uh, has its roots in the affliction of the enemy, and maybe even if without Christ, the possession of the enemy. Um, so I think we got to be careful that we just don't make everything clinical. Some things have the roots in the spiritual in the spiritual realm, and we have to attack the problem in a like fashion, not try to uh, medicate. All things. Some right. things are spiritual. We nature. have this inclination in our culture to just not call something what it is. Some things are just yeah. evil. Some things are just demonic. But like you right. said, a lot of times we've tried to find a clinical diagnosis right. or an excuse or a fact pattern that says, mm-hmm. well, if that's true, then I don't have to accept right. that there's an actual spiritual war going on for my very soul. Right. Because I don't think a lot of people really want to Right. deal with that, particularly in a secular culture, because why would you want to deal with a spiritual war if you don't have a savior? Right. So just one more word on that. I think when we talk about the spiritual war for this, for the soul of a human, we have to understand too, and, and give some, give the Christian, the, the legitimate Christian, some confidence here, because the Bible is very clear that nothing can take you out of God's hand. You are, you, you are sealed to the day of salvation. There's nothing, no demonic force, no human force, no created thing that can, uh, that can be strong enough to pluck you out of the mighty hand of that God. That can separate you from the love Absolutely. of God. Absolutely. But once the enemy knows that you're a lost cause to him, he cannot have you, his next uh, plan of attack is to minimize your joy, your effectiveness, and your testimony so that you don't affect the world around you. So he will try to keep you isolated, try to keep you depressed, distracted, and uh, anxious so that you cannot perform in, in, in the gifts, talents, and the likeness of Christ in the world around you. So we have to be careful of these things. It's a brilliant battle plan. It absolutely because is. Because if, if— We're the hope of—the the church is the hope of the world. Right. And if he can keep you— down, depressed, not living in the joy of Christ without using resources on you. Absolutely. He has more. Right. So, so don't, don't, don't ever, if you are a Christian today, don't think, well, the enemy's trying to, you know, can take away my, my Christianity. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that uh, you are sealed to the day of salvation, yet you have a responsibility to fight the battles that God has given you and not let the enemy uh, make you ineffective for the kingdom. So I know we're going a little bit long, but I just don't want to end on that note. Okay, great. It, that was kind of a that was kind of serious, kind of talking about the but demons. So good, it was good. So, so needed. Just a couple of minutes, I want to ask you. So I'm reading a book, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll sum it up quickly. But it's a parenting book, mm-hmm. and there's a quote from the book that really, as I was listening to you preach, I was like, wow, that that just it was like what I was reading about. And the statement is this: when it comes with to parents and children. That children's attention f- follows their attachment. Okay. So that you you can't properly get a child's attention unless they're attached to you. Okay. You're in this loving bond relationship. There's a whole lot of psychology behind yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. We won't get into that. But when we're talking about prayer, and prayer is this mysterious thing. It's like, you know, we've already covered that. God already knows what we need, what we need to ask for. But really what it's about is relationship. Mm-hmm. Prayer is this moment. So in in this scenario, if God is my father and I'm his child, right. and attention follows attachment, right. is that kind of really what our prayer lives are about? And what I mean by that is we spend time with God in the morning, mm-hmm. whether it's with our coffee or in bed, mm-hmm. or it's you know on our hands and knees, whatever we do. Or on your commute. Or on our commute, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. What we're really doing is building an attachment bond mm-hmm. with God. Yeah. But now that we're attached, is that the point at which he has our attention? Mm-hmm. So in our Christian life, if we're not spending time in prayer and study, is it more likely that we're going to miss the gentle nudges of God telling us, this is going to be all right. Hey, maybe you should pursue this career. You know, 
maybe you should have treated that interaction with this other person. Mm-hmm. Does attachment, like, do we need attachment before God has our attention in a way that's useful for us? Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, and it. I think it's. It's, I think it's the first, I think it's the first point because that's why we call it a discipline, right? We, we, you know, God's already there. We Mm -hmm. talked about that Sunday in the quiet place. He's already there. It it takes us disciplining ourselves to get to that place. But once we do that, we build this rapport, we build this relationship with God that allows us to hear his voice in those moments. I think about, you know, they've done studies of kids who, um, grow up without a without that connection mm-hmm. of a parent and one of the some of the things that it does is it it stunts their ability for speech because they haven't had that connection they don't know what it sounds like to talk in 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 a way when mm-hmm. we talk to our kids we we use to de- de- uh deliberately uh intentionally i should say short words and then then the words get a little longer and a little bit more complicated and it goes from da da to hey i would like uh you know money for a date that i'm going on yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so there's a progression to our dialogue and i think that's the same way with god the more we uh, spend time with him the better we're able to understand uh his voice and have conversation with him in a more uh, intellectual or familial way it may start like a discipline it may start like small words and in, in, in elementary way. But here's the other thing too, you know, we often think about prayer in, in a, in a dysfunctional way as it's just that laundry list of, you know, bless so-and-so bless so-and-so give me this. I need that. You know, these types of things. That's a very infantile way of yeah. thinking about prayer. That's what babies do. Right? So if you're doing that, that's you know that maybe that's the maybe that's the first step but try to try to expand on that one of the things that we learn from scripture is we get more confident with with our prayers when we understand the heart of god mm-hmm. it says when we ask in accordance to the will of god we can be confident that he will give us the things we ask for what does that even mean i mean it means you don't all you you by yourself don't always know the will of God, but the more you use that, like you the knowledge you said that what is it? You're more attached. It's an attachment to God, and you learn who God is. You learn His heart. You learn His desires. You learn His love. You and in that book, it talks about this attachment is not just a physical attachment; it's an emotional, spirit. so it's a holistic attachment to the parent, and that particularly the younger they are, yeah, that attachment bond is way more. Um, it's way more impactful on a child's psyche right. than what you're about to tell them. Right. So you need to have that attachment. And and I feel the same way through prayer where the more I pray, mm-hmm. the more attached to God I become. Right. It's almost like I liken it to, and this is just a loose analogy, it's almost like if you have a good prayer session in the morning, it's almost like an inside joke. Have you ever noticed this? Yeah, like all day, yeah, you're, like, exactly you're talking about. like, now you like, you might've had this thought or this, this moment in your prayer. And then like, it's like eight hours later, you like, you might see like a bill. It's almost like you're having this inside. It's like the word of the day from Pius. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you're, and you're like, you're like, oh yeah, God, we covered that this morning. Yeah. yeah. But you can't, he can't point you to those billboards throughout your day. If you're not attached to him. Right. So getting to know the heart of God to being attached to the person. I mean, uh, there's things that I come across. And if you're in a marriage relationship, you'd know that, you know, oh, so what Lisa's going to, this is how she's going to react. Oh, 100%. And sometimes I only have to look at my exactly. wife. We're having a conversation. It's shorthand. It's yeah. a shorthand. It's like, so, so that's, that's that, that's attachment to God. And when you start getting that relationship with God or that attachment for sake of this, this analogy to God, then you're going to be able to start praying in accordance with the heart of God. And that's when you're going to really start seeing uh, things move in your in your life, move in other people's lives, because we're not praying according to our own desires. We're praying according to the will and the and the uh, the desire of God. And just my last thought on that attachment attention dialogue is, as the father of a toddler, mm-hmm. when the world comes at her fast, and now granted, it could just be 
she's built her milk. Yeah. But that's coming at you. The world's coming at you hey, fast. There's nothing wrong but getting upset about spilled milk. But, <laughs> but, but when it happens, her first gaze yep. is to the people she's attached Absolutely. to the most. So I just wanted to be said about me. And Isn't Christian, that hilarious how they do that, though? In Christian people yeah. that when the world comes at you hard mm-hmm. and you want to cry, you want to give up, your gaze should go right back to that person that you're mm-hmm. attached to. And I think you find that in your prayer time. Think about that. When, when, let's just take the analogy of the spilled milk. She, let's just say she even spills her own milk. Which is the case. She spills her own milk. Instead of looking at the milk, she's going to look up at you to find out, was that okay? Am I in trouble? Is this something that, you know, th- the milk is just milk. It's, they, they want to see the, the eyes of the mom and dad to find out, am I, am I okay? Am I safe? Am, am I safe? Am I okay? Is this a bad thing? That's, that's such a good analogy. And just for, let, I just want it to be said that that's at least one solid element. That's what prayer should produce, at least in abs- some way. Absolutely. It, there are other things, but I think that's a go-to. I think that's, like the fir- that's one of the first steps. Because then you start, then you start learning the heart of God. And you don't have to look at him anymore. You know. <laughs> you know what he's going to say, think, or do. So what's up next week? So next week we're going to be delving more into this concept of uh, the, a lifestyle of prayer. Not just those, those uh, isolated moments. Those are important. We need to do that. But this, kind of like the shorthand joke, you know, <laughs> throughout the day. What does it look like to incorporate a prayer, like incorporate God in our prayer life as the day moves on, not just uh, in those moments of, of uh, designated prayer time. Awesome. We'll look forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be good. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Um, please remember to like, to follow, to subscribe. Give us a five-star review. If you like this podcast, uh, don't be afraid to share it with a friend. And we just appreciate you listening. So until next week... Hey guys, we'll see you later. God bless. Matthew 28.